0: And then half is teaching. Um, I also uh, was able to do faculty development at Cornerstone University and basically working with faculty on the scholarship of teaching and learning. And um, so that has been um, part of my interest and involvement in learning in higher education. And then before I uh, taught at Cornerstone, I um, I at Potter's House Middle School, I taught 7th and 8th grade, uh, I taught language arts and social studies. Um, currently I'm teaching educational psychology and that has a lot of focus on um, learning theories, motivational theories. Um, so those are uh, some of my background that I bring to the table today, to this session. Um, I'm a mother of three kiddos. Um, my husband in the middle. Uh, I will refer to them maybe a couple times during this session. Uh, the two on the ends are starting college this year um, and having a lot of fun and hopefully learning in the classroom as well. <laughs> um, Jojo and Christian on the ends. Uh, all right, next slide. So I'm going to read this slide to you. Welcome in. Uh, We just got started. Glad that you found the space. I was almost late for my own presentation. (laughs) So thankfully I had someone that got me here. So welcome 12 educators have experienced in the last couple years. Um, I do hope that this time today and tomorrow can be restorative for you. I thought the title of uh, this uh, convention was very fitting. Um, So it's good to be uh, together. And next slide, please. So the, the idea behind, let's go back to the why behind effective teaching. We know that there are high leverage practices, that there are teaching practices that are effective. And I'm going to refer to Josh Eiler's work um, because he came up with the framework that I want to present today. Um, he was really interested in the why behind effective teaching. so. You know what these evidence-based practices are, but why do they work? Why do they work with some teachers and not others? And so uh, he's done some research, um, and then I'm going to tie in some other research. But about a year ago, I heard him um, uh, interview with him, and he has written uh, this book, How Humans Learn, and. I don't necessarily subscribe to all of his uh, beliefs. I'm not sure if he's a believer. Um, But there are some nuggets that I think we can draw from um, that do align with our Christian worldview. Um, But what was interesting is when I went back to his work after hearing this discussion, or this uh, interview with him, was I realized the subtitle here says the science and stories behind effective college teaching. And I've done faculty development, so I've worked with faculty on <laughs> teaching, but when I first heard his ideas, it did not seem to me like he was uh, talking about college teaching. In fact, I think his framework fits quite, quite well, especially well with k 12 Next slide, please. I would like you to think about how you learn best and turn to one or two people around you and talk about how you learn best. Go ahead and get started. That's right. Yes. When possible, when there's a story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stories certainly do. Um, I'm familiar with, uh, there's a difference between episodic memory and semantic memory. And episodic memory is memory that's associated with stories. And there's that emotional connection which uh, contributes to uh, retention, memory retention. there's some good reminders, I think, and these are the five that I'm going to uh, go through. So let's uh, we'll start with curiosity. Um, curiosity, according to Susan Engel, and I'm going to talk about her study in a minute, but she suggests that it's the engine of intellectual development. Children are naturally curious, and I would suggest that God made us curious beings, if you've ever spent time with a toddler or a four year old, you may recognize there are um, so many questions. Mm-hmm. And often they start with a what question, and then they follow with the why question, like the application. So what's this about? And then why? And Susan Engels suggested that that um, gives evidence that we are wired to be uh, curious or uh, inquisitive. That's the word that I'm looking for. Um, But let me tell you about the study that Susan Engel did. So she wanted to um, study different kinds of curiosity specifically in the classroom. And so she and her research assistant spent three months, two hour sessions in classrooms. So she go to a classroom for two hours. She went to kindergarten classrooms, or they, went to kindergarten classrooms and fifth grade classrooms. And they went to find out about types of curiosity, but what they determined was the number of curiosity episodes. So students asking like those curious questions. Um, by the time they were in fifth grade, within two hours, were less than two. In kindergarten, two to five. And so what she recognized was it wasn't even the type, she went into the study assuming that she would be able to uh, determine types of curiosity. What she found was in schools that um, there were very few uh, curiosity episodes, especially by fifth grade. her conclusion was that perhaps educational systems do not value uh, curiosity, but she also understand, and this made sense to me, she said, yeah, but you know, if you think about what teachers have to make happen, if it's a scripted curriculum, you're getting through curriculum, sometimes it's, it's perhaps, um, n- not feasible, you need to move forward, right? You've got to get through content. Um, um, What was I going to say about that study? Oh, okay, this is, I also think, is significant. So she put out a survey, or she found a survey that asked educators to circle their top five values. And curiosity was listed, It came up in the top 75% of uh, those values that teachers consider very important in the classroom. Then they asked teachers to list their five. Come up from the top of your head, what are the five? Curiosity did not come up once. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between we value it, but maybe is it happening or not? And so uh, she suggested that it's not a top priority. Um, do you remember learning about Madeline Hunter in college lesson planning? Okay, <laughs> some of you are, no. still that brings back some bad memories. Um, I'm bringing this up because as a as someone that teaches pre-service teachers, we teach them lesson planning. And I'm gonna suggest that Madeline Hunter got something right. She's, that, that lesson plan design has been around a long time. But what she, um, she part of the lesson plan, lesson plan design is that anticipatory set. And there's a reason for that. It's that hook, how are you gonna capture the attention of your students? And I think that makes a lot of sense. So, back to a Curiosity kind of started his work on this framework. He says, suggests that we need to encourage curiosity, design activities that bring curiosity out, and he talked about a term that I had not heard before, and he called it over-directed instruction. Now, in higher education, um, we've, really been, uh, in terms of teaching and learning, have been very behind uh, P-12 in terms of uh, high-leverage practices. And lecture has gotten very bad rap. However, when I think about lecture, I think about direct instruction. And that's not all bad, but you can overdo it. And we need to be considering factors such as how long are you doing direct instruction? Are you giving all the content without giving students think time or time to ask some of the important questions or generate questions uh, that can feed into their curiosity? Basically our goal is to have self-directed learners. And so Eiler is suggesting that if we can draw on that curiosity that students can become um, more self-directed learners. Alright, next slide. Sociality. Um, my claim, I've organized uh, these topics so I can remember claim evidence uh, sport. So the claim is that we are created as social beings, that God created us to be in community. I think after the the last couple of years, we can agree to how important it is to be in community uh, with each other. There are studies on isolation, and this is even prior to COVID, that suggest that isolation not only is linked with mental health or a decline in mental health, but actually is connected to um, physical health. Those that were severely isolated Physically felt sick. Um, so let's go back to uh, the importance of sociality. Um, we're created to be in community, but we're also shaped by our environment, and I this is where I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Um, because our environment, and when I say environment, I'm not just just talking about that physical environment. I'm also thinking about, especially as it relates to sociality, that psychological and social environment and how important that that is um, as we interact with each other. And so interactions are extremely important uh, in learning. Um, and I think COVID really highlights the importance of uh, the need to be with others and uh, collaborate. So when I um, did my research for my dissertation, I uh, was very interested in the idea of community. And often what I found, I I studied, and this was uh, creating community in the college classroom, but I think there's still things we can learn uh, just in teaching in general. Um, so I, it was a study on students' perceptions of community and did it correlate with instructors' sense of community and the research that supported my research and findings was the importance of creating a safe environment. And also Creating a sense of belonging. So every student in your class feels like they have a place in your class. Now, for you, uh, P12 teachers, this, again, I feel like I may be preaching to the choir, um, but this isn't always true with with higher ed professors, which is why I did the research on it. In fact, um, well, if you remember. College. A lot of the professors do not have training in teaching. Um, I I remember when I started as faculty development, I was in my 30s and I was like, okay, what am I, you know, I'm too young to do this. Who am I to tell someone that's an expert in their field how to teach better? And then I quickly realized um, some of them didn't know to use students' names. Well, Pat. okay, I think I can do this job. <laughs> We're I think we can do that. Um, so a few years ago, I um, had the opportunity to meet with other deans and directors of teacher ed programs. The Mich- Michigan Department of Education asked some of us to get together, and we could invite um, partners like other administrators, and they tasked us with reviewing high leverage practices. They gave us 19 of them. And basically what they wanted to do was to determine what are the most important high leverage practices that we should require educator preparation programs to teach pre-service teachers. Okay, so leading a a whole group uh, discussion, that's one. Uh, eliciting and interpreting student thinking and this is all research based from Teaching Works, uh, U of M at the time started this program and so they gave us little voting stickers and what we got to do was we went around to all these 19 higher leverage practices and we could put stickers on the ones that we thought were very important and then they even said, okay Really like wanting you want to give like three stickers out of your five you could do that. This was kind of a clever little approach. I had never done that. Maybe you have. By far, the top high leverage practice that everyone agreed on was building respectful relationships with students. So that speaks to the importance of community and sense of belonging in the classroom. That. We as teachers need to know our students' names. They need to feel like they have a sense of belonging. I do want to highlight this picture, by the way, because I think it shows us the ideal of small group work. Perhaps what we think small group work should be. We're working together. This is just wonderful. And then what really happens is you're like, okay. You take A, I'll take B, you take, and then we'll come together, and then we'll put it back together. So that's really what happens. Well, my suggestion is that instead of creating some small group projects like that, perhaps collaborating together um, with open-ended questions could be a, a really good way to learn from each other. And some of you are like, Yeah, what's that? Cooperative learning. Um, or social constructivism, where you're constructing knowledge with other people. Um, but it also makes me think about the times in class, and as I supervise students out in the field, and, and I notice this not only with pre-service teachers, but I do notice this sometimes in classrooms where a teacher will ask a question that has a right or wrong answer, and this is what happens on the student don't pick on me, don't Mm -hmm. pick it, like no eye contact. And then sure enough, there's one kid, taking it for the (laughs) team. And everyone else is like, yes. And usually that kid gets the answer right. Um, Creating that safe environment also means, are you creating an environment where students can take risks? So maybe a lower stakes, or going back to those open-ended questions, where also in a group, you can run that question or your thoughts uh, by someone else. And then if they look at like, you like you're an idiot, you're like, yeah, I'm not sharing that out loud. Mm-hmm. Or you're like, oh, I'm pretty smart, I'm to share that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's uh, part of uh, creating that safe environment. Okay, let's go to the next slide, I'm sorry. All right, emotion. This is, uh, I think, especially pertinent right now, uh, after the last couple of years, and what we're seeing with an increase in anxiety and challenges with mental health. And I would like to um, suggest that thinking and feeling cannot be uh, separated, that they work together. Learning is connected to emotion. If you think about, and I I will talk to pre-service teachers about this. When you think about a student, P-12 student, their, their full-time job is to be a student, full-time. I mean, you go every day, all day. Can you imagine uh, failing at your job, your full-time job, every day? So what's the result of that? Sometimes you see it in action apathy, but sometimes that's covering up for serious insecurity. Um, Research suggests that uh, there have been studies that show that mental health is impacted directly by academic stress. So, academic stress, and by the way, this is not even a correlation, this is causation. And we don't go there a lot. I was drilled into my head in my stats class, not causation. There is a direct causation from uh, academic stress that leads to mental health. In fact, when our stress increases, there's something neurological that happens in our brains that, kind of like the fight or flight, we shut down. So one of my kiddos struggled with social anxiety. I remember when she started going through that, I thought, okay, honey, let's not share this with everyone. just keep it on the download. Well, of course, she shares. She likes to get attention. That's part of it. But the other part is uh, pretty uh, either, either the students had experienced it themselves or they knew someone that experienced this social anxiety that she had but what she found was that when she would go into a class and this was when she was in high school when she experienced that anxiety she couldn't learn there's nothing that anyone could do the teacher could do until she was able to recover because her mind shut down. Very important for us to remember uh, with our students and especially I think about students who um, maybe come from homes that are broken or disadvantaged and we're expecting them to sit, process information, pay attention and they've just had something awful happen and it's hard for them to turn their minds on until they can Uh, restore uh, their emotions. Um, We know that COVID has increased anxiety, like I said, but what research does say is that uh, students work harder when you invest in them. There is a connection that students will work harder when you invest in them. Therefore, the single most effective strategy is what I would call the pedagogy of care. And as believers, my perspective is that I see my student as a whole person. I do this in this isn't in middle school. I taught middle school right now in college. That I recognize that it's a whole person. That it's not just intellectual, their mind, but spiritual, emotional, social. And that pedagogy of care is that I care for them as a person but then as a professional I care about their learning and do they know that I care about their learning a couple or another um, point that I want to emphasize for uh, emotion is uh, the idea of enthusiasm and I don't know if you've ever been in maybe a college classroom, or a regular classroom, where it's like, you don't seem really into this. <laughs> maybe you should stop teaching, because you're really not into your own content. Or you can remember a time where you were in a classroom, and you weren't particularly invested in the topic, but the energy and the enthusiasm that the teacher had was contagious. There's a, uh, I taught this morning, and I had the privilege of having um, one of my kids' teachers in, in the session, and I didn't call him out by name, because I didn't want to embarrass him, but I was thinking about him. He teaches history, and my kids, you know, weren't really, weren't really into that. But when they were in his class, it came alive, and I'm not trying to be like con-history-alive. But is that what it is, History of Life? Or is that still a thing? Okay. Anyway, they, that enthusiasm um, was contagious. And so it's important also to uh, consider about, consider how we're presenting um, our content, but also are we excited about teaching? I think that's also perhaps difficult right now as many of you are weary and tired Uh, so I do also want to acknowledge that I think um, when we talk about taking care of our students and we think about their mental health and self-awareness there are times that we are not aware of our own needs and uh, we need to be more self-aware and take care of ourselves Uh, I don't think I'm a good example of that, I'm still working on it Um, but I, I am mindful that that's something that uh, we as educators, if I, if I want to pour into my students, then I have to have um, my bucket filled. Um, and it also uh, allows me to completely rely on God to be able to do that. <laughs> Next slide, slide, please. Authenticity. So when I saw that, I initially thought, okay, is it like if I'm authentic or not? And actually, it's more about uh, the authentic learning environment versus an inauthentic learning environment. And I don't know if you can see what this slide says. It says the brain can immediately detect an authentic learning environment from an artificial learning environment. So there's studies, brain scan studies that show our brain immediately knows authentic an authentic learning environment. In fact, our brain goes on vacation when, we're, when we experience an inauthentic learning environment. Um, there was a, a study on what happened with, uh, if, if they put a person uh, who's learning on fly in a plane, so authentic learning environment, and put them in a simulator, how did that compare? And the study showed that even the stimulator, simulator, rather, they, the brain, saw that or perceived that as an authentic learning environment. However, when those individuals sat in a lecture hall and someone taught them about flying, that was an inauthentic. Uh, learning environment and they did not uh, perceive their learning. Now that, again, is not to uh, speak poorly of lecture, because there's also a lot of other factors that contribute to direct instruction and uh, lecture. But with that, I would argue, not only do we have to have those real life examples or application, but we may have to answer, ask, answer, I'm sticking with answer, answer the questions why is this important? So when you have students who are like, I don't know why I'm learning this. Why is this important? That we provide uh, them with, and hopefully we can answer why it's important. Perhaps that's an indicator that we have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Why what we're teaching is important. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I, I took Spanish and it was just like in a classroom, I didn't like the teacher, so, and I'm a Gen Xer, so Gen Xers thought, didn't think very highly of authority, so that may have contributed to my bad attitude about the, I just didn't like her as a person though. Anyway, so I I went through this class, didn't learn, I feel like I can, honest with you I cheated on the exam to get a B minus in the class didn't have to take another language class again thank goodness the private Christian school in upstate New York and maybe New York didn't require that you have a a language so then I come to Michigan I go to college and they're like yeah you you need some you have to catch up I'm like right. my parents are like we're sending you to Spain and you are going to get your language requirements done Okay, at that point, Spanish. This is what Spanish to me was. It's a different language. I think Spain is in Europe. I was worried about that. <laughs> and the chicks wear red dresses and have red lipstick, and they dance really fancy. <laughs> okay. So then I spent I spent a semester in Spain. I'm immersed in the culture and. That's what I'm talking about, real life application. That's kind of an easy one. Um, But my learning was like the multi-sensory, right? It wasn't just uh, sitting down and reading my book to learn the conjugations, but it was the smells, the sights, the hearing, the authentic language. Um, So, going back to authenticity, uh, well, what do we need to do as teachers help students make these connections. Uh, Transfer is important. Uh, There was a teacher once that, so a couple teachers, math teacher teaches uh, how to change decimals to fractions, fractions to percentage, okay? And she's like, yeah, I just nailed that. They, They met the learning target. I have evidence from their tests. So then they go over to their English class and the teacher's like, okay, like I don't know, spelling test or something. She's like, okay, um, so great test. Okay, now um, do the math and you know, give yourself a percentage. I'm like, we don't know how to do that. She's like, um, yes, you do. Yes, you do because you're doing it in math class. Well, they didn't transfer what they learned from math into their English class. Therefore it's also important for us to help students make that transfer. Um, all right and then just lastly on this topic of my. Hand. Thank you. Um, along the lines of per, uh, providing these authentic learning experiences, I thought about like you know reading about studying rocks or reading about rocks versus, Collecting rocks and studying them that way, that way, that would be another example. All right, let's move on. All right, think about something that you've learned really well, like something that you're good at. How do you learn that? I'm gonna give you some think time, because that's what teachers do, they give think time. tweak. So it's kind of like I'd try something and then based on the feedback or the outcome, then I would make adjustments and then I would try it again and then i get that feedback and then I'd tweak it. So there's this natural learning process. I am talking about the scientific method to make it fancy. But there's this learning process where we learn uh, from our, our mistakes, right? And then we tweak them, and then we adapt. Can you go to the next slide? So, Joshua Ayler suggests that education is not supporting the cycle. Uh, he's, he's like hot on this, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure we should get rid of all grades. He's ready to go there. But basically, he's saying we shut this cycle down, we give students one chance and slap a grade on it instead instead of <clears throat> next slide utilizing opportunities like failure error mistakes as learning opportunities rather than penalties and i don't know this is again that connection with emotion in learning one of the twins that I showed you the picture of, when she um, was in elementary school, she struggled with reading, and so she got pulled out for reading help. And at the time, she's like, yes, because she liked her teacher. Teacher gave her candy, and the other kid that went, she thought was cute. Mm-hmm. So she goes off. She's like, all right, going with Caleb and my favorite teacher. Well, then as she got older, she realized why she was going. It also didn't help that her twin brother processes, she just thought he was smart. And he learns pretty quickly, processes information fast, knows what to attend to, and he is so scared of getting, okay, not anymore, but he was so scared to get in trouble that one of his teachers compared him to Jesus' behavior. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Please don't say that. You do not see him with his siblings at home. (laughs) But anyway, so she's being taken out, comparing herself to her brother, starts to get it that she is not. She doesn't feel as smart. So we uh, end up sending the, the kids to a different middle school. And I look at her reading scores and I know how to interpret them because I was a teacher, and I'm like, honey, you are in the top, the top percent, okay, 25%, but still, you're in the top percentage for reading informational text. There's your proof. You are not done. To this day, she has a very low self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the belief that you can approach a task, like a learning task, and have a positive outcome. She still has that low self-efficacy. I don't know how to combat that. I'm like, the stats say that you can read better than 75% of the people, if I'm understanding that, if I was reading those stats correctly, but even just telling her that, she had it in her mind that she was a failure. And instead of being like, all right, but you went through some of these errors and, and tweaked, and you had the support that you needed to get to this point. And now she's in college. And she was very frustrated. They had fall break this week. And she's like, Mom, I studied for that math test. I studied. And the other kids in my class didn't study. And I failed, and they didn't. And then she just. Puts herself into that that category of her identity. I'm dumb. And yet, if she could, well, and this is of course the mom's heart that you're hearing, partly educator. Let's look at this. What, what, What was the error? What can we do next time? You're not dumb. She will say to me, Yeah, mom, I know. I mean, you think I'm not dumb. There is such a connection between emotion and failure. In our educational systems, I think we do maybe a better job of reframing mistakes, right, and especially as we think about um, what we talked about with uh, anxiety and the connection with mental health, increasing students' curiosity and interest so that they own their learning, these low stakes like make low stakes failure in a safe learning environment so like again asking these open ended questions where it's safe to take risks and think out loud and process information he also and I think we can agree on the importance of feedback yeah. you see the F that you saw up there and that can give students uh, an emotional response and do they know what that means, well for most kids it means I'm, I failed or I'm dumb, but research suggests that constructive, actionable feedback is one of the best ways that we can help students learn. has to be good. So when I grade my um, teacher education students' papers and try to have this pedagogy of care, I think I've got that, the pedagogy of care, I'm very mindful of the feedback that I give them and I want it to be thoughtful and I want to tell them when this is really good, you're on the right, you know, you're on the right path. This is a great example. That they will trust me when I say, you need to support this claim. Where's the evidence? You need to edit this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you really fired up about that. I do tell my college students to edit their work. Um, they don't all listen. <laughs> However, I tell them that their administrators will be very thankful to me if they could just start editing their work now. Uh-huh. So, anyway. All right. That's... Yeah, that's a little tangent there. All right. Um, last thing I want to uh, refer back to is the idea of self-efficacy and how important it is um, with, in, in, in uh, as it aligns with failure, that we really want students to be able to have a higher self-efficacy so that when they're met with challenges, they don't give up. Do you know what the difference is between a strong reader and a struggling reader, I will tell you. The difference is that a strong reader knows what to do when they get in trouble. They don't give up. And so, as teachers, if we can create low-stakes failure opportunities and we can build on students' self-efficacy so they don't shut down or give up when they're met with challenges, I remember when I, so I had to take these stats classes for my PhD or my doctorate program and I didn't feel like I was very strong in math, algebra I killed it, but, and maybe I can blame math teachers, but it wasn't, I didn't really have an affinity for math. I had a low self-efficacy, didn't feel like I was very good at math. But what I did find was the more successes that I had, And by the way, I felt like I had to give it three times longer than maybe everyone else. But if I stuck with it, I had some success. And my outcome, the positive outcome wasn't necessarily an A, but I learned something and it paid off to stick with it. I faced a challenge, it took me a long time to stick with it, but I did and it was a positive outcome. And... So I want to encourage you to be thinking of that, with especially those students that maybe have felt like failures their whole life uh, and maybe are in high school. Um, so they've been in, in that full-time job for a long time. Can you go to the next slide? All right, um, right. just summarize curiosity, sociality, emotion, authenticity, failure. I was gonna ask you to think of two that uh, really resonated with you and talk about it, but our time is limited. Bye. So let's go to the next slide. These are some final thoughts. Thanks to Madeline Hunter, I'm more mindful of closure. That's not something that's like the end when you wrap things up. Not very good at that when I'm working on it. So these are some of my final thoughts uh, the importance of the environment, creating community, a safe space. Establishing safety, the importance of trust. Knowing the whole person, not just in uh, their mind, the intellect. Uh, Encouraging you to promote this curiosity, to draw it out. The pedagogy of care. Do your students know that you care about them? Using their names. Having short conversations, too. Have you ever had it where, like, you've got a student that can literally talk your ear off for, like, two or three classes straight, and you need an exit strategy? <laughs> you can keep those, give them short conversations. And, by the way, you can do an exit strategy, like, i so glad you told me that. You know, I can't wait to hear about that later. <laughs> you <need yourself. laughs> And then I do want to just, again, acknowledge and recognize the high calling of teaching, particularly today. Um, There's a a shortage of teachers across the nation. There's a shortage of teachers uh, in the state of Michigan. But I believe that now is the time for Christian educators to be influencers in the classroom, and that it is such a high calling. And I know it's really hard work, uh, particularly the last couple of years that you've been been through um, but my hope is that through the hard work that you are leaning on God I mean that's really what it comes down to. Um, God creates beauty from ashes but sometimes what that translates to is we recognize our fragility and we know we need to lean on God and my prayer for you in the next two days is that you feel restored, Energized, that maybe you get some uh, encouragement out of these sessions to go back into the classroom, build respectful relationships, love and care on your students uh, as as God's calling you to do, and that ultimately that really honors God. Mm-hmm. This is a calling that is um, not clearly not acknowledged the way that it should be. But my guess, or my guess, uh, my thought is that it's. Uh, Uh, call it, it's a vocation, it's a job that really not pleases God when we can take care of uh, his children. Mm -hmm. Let me end with this quote from Eiler. Teaching and learning are human activities. Human beings have big questions, real feelings, complicated relationships, a hunger for what's real and genuine limitations. All of which factor Thank you very much for coming. I'm going to stick around if you have questions.